three weeks, Chris is, well, the last several weeks, we've been going through the Psalms of Ascent. And the last three weeks, Chris has taken Psalm 127, 128, and 129 and put them together in a series on missional living. So just a quick review of the last two weeks. Um, we saw two weeks ago when uh, Brent was here presenting the Perspectives class in that ministry that God has called every Christ follower and every local church to God's mission. He's called us to part of God's mission, which is just the big picture of God's plan. That's what God is doing in the world through Christ. But he's also called us all to do missions. And that's the global part. That's going cross-culturally to be involved in what God is doing in the world through Christ. And cross-culturally, that used to mean people like the Gandhis, that you leave your country, you go to a foreign country, you live there. And we support many missionaries that have done that. But more and more, we have cross-cultural opportunities right here, like what Audra did last summer, just going 15 minutes away and ministering to an entirely different people group than what we are. And these people groups are moving to us. We need to become better at ministering cross-culturally and identifying with them. Like somebody needs to identify with my wife sitting at the table by herself. I'm sorry. But we need to be involved in God's mission. We need to be involved in doing missions. But we also need to be involved in being missional. Being missional, that's the daily practice of God's plan in our life. Being personally involved each day in what God has going on in the world through Christ. So be missional. And that's what this um, three-week series has been about, is missional living. Last week, Chris talked about the power for missional living. The power, and showed that the power comes from God, not from us. And that was the power. And now this week, we're talking about perseverance in missional living. Perseverance. And I put a definition there in your notes. I always like to define terms so we know where we're going. Perseverance means steady persistence in a course of action or a purpose. Now, now that sounds cool. Steady persistence. Sticking with it. Going for it. That, that just sounds good. But then you read the rest of the definition. Steady persistence in a course of action or a purpose, especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement. Okay, that's not fun anymore. Obstacles, discouragement. You know, okay, just a little personal thing here. Some lessons are fun to teach. Sometimes it's just kind of fun to get a lesson right. I don't feel like I'm in the middle of the room. Where should I be? Some lessons are just more fun. I mean, Chris, uh, a few years ago, taught a series called I Love. It was in February, Valentine's Month. And he had different ones of us teach. I know Kirk taught, I think, on I Love My Spouse, which made Dana happy for a day. Uh, I believe Pat Dunn taught on I Love My God. And I had the subject, I Love History, which I really do. I really like history. So that was fun. That lesson was just, that lesson just happened. It was fun. A couple of years ago, Chris taught a series on being a Christian witness in your workplace. And I got to teach a, a lesson on, re, you know, how you handle work situations. And I don't remember the exact topic, but I know I started off with my top 10 thoughts on work. And it just devolved into 35 minutes of me making fun of my employer. Easy, easy lesson to teach. But this topic, perseverance. When Chris gave me the material for this, he couldn't stop himself from laughing. 
saying, man, this is going to be tough. I'm glad it's you. Yeah, it's like, thanks, pal. <laughs> so perseverance, it's, it's a tough topic. And I, I was tempted to kind of approach this like Thomas Jefferson did. You know, our, our third president was widely, I mean, he had widely proclaimed that he believed the Bible. But it's also widely known that he took a copy of the Bible and a pair of scissors and cut out parts he didn't like. We could cut this out. This would be easy. But we can't do that, can we? Taking that approach is like saying, okay, this is how I want to think about God. I just want to look at the things I like. But God in his word revealed himself the way he wants us to think about God. And we have to look at all parts of that. We can't ignore any of it. So today, we're going to persevere in talking about perseverance. But perseverance in missional living. Turn to Psalm 129. Psalm 129 is where we'll be for this topic today. And the first thing I want to do is just read through it and just explain some of the imagery and some of the background and some of what they're talking about there. And then we'll get into applying that for, uh, for our lives. So Psalm 129, we'll read the, all eight verses. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So a lot of imagery here, a lot of things to talk through. The first two verses starts off sounding like an individual speaker. You know, great have they afflicted me. But he says, let Israel now say. It's as if the body of Israel, the entire nation, was saying this together, saying, great have we been afflicted. And they say it, it's said twice. It's repeated because that emphasizes the magnitude of the affliction and the length of it, the longevity of it, longevity of their affliction. But then quickly, there at the end of verse 2, they say, yet they have not prevailed against me. They're quick to come back and say, hey, we've been through a lot, but they haven't prevailed. They haven't prevailed. And that's an important point that we'll look at later. Verse 3 and 4, he talks about plowing. And there's... uh, couple different ways you can look at this. This could mean a lot of people look at this as, you know, where he says the plower is plowed by back. That's like a, a back that's been laid open by a whip or a scourge and just the long furrows cut into the flesh. And there's other commentators that looked at this and said that it could mean that their enemies plowed their fields based on the strength of the Israelites' back. You know, you strap the plow the harness to your back and you pull the plow and you pull the long furrows. But either way you look at it, you read those words and you can just sense and you can feel the pain, the exhaustion, the discouragement, the lack of any hope of reward. The plowers plowed my back. It's just painful. But very quickly they follow that in verse 4 by saying the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. He didn't forget them. He didn't neglect them. He didn't forsake them says he has cut the cords. The picture is you, if you have that plow strapped to your back, he cut the cords. You're free. You're free to go. You're no longer enslaved by that enemy. So God has delivered them. 
Now, in verse 5, it turns from them talking about their history, talking about things that have gone on in their life, and it turns to them in entreating God, pleading with God for how they want to see him deal with their enemies. In verse 5, when it says, May all who hate Zion, that identifies who they've been talking about is the they, by the way. All who hate Zion, all who hate Israel, and the inference is all those who hate God, because the Israelites were God's people. May they be put to shame and turned backwards. It says, God put them to shame, and that backwards is like put them into full retreat, drive them back. And that immediately brought to my mind the Six-Day War. Is anybody familiar with the Six-Day War back in June of 67? Yes, I was alive. (laughs) You young people, I tell you. But Israel, surrounded by Arab nations, they just lived in fear that they were going to be attacked from all sides. So they went on a preemptive offensive strike against their three main enemies. And literally, it got the name Six-Day War because it only took six days. In six days, Israel captured the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. They captured the West Bank, including all of Jerusalem from Jordan. And they captured the Golan Heights from Syria, all in six days. And the common joke at the time was that it would have been a three-day war except the Egyptian tanks only had one slow speed in reverse. Retreat, reverse, slow. It really was funny. <sighs> but this is, what, this is what they're saying here. And God put them in retreat, drive them back, defeat them. Yeah, my wife has a partner now. She's making fun of my joke bombing. <laughs> Long day, long day. Okay, but seriously, that's what they were at. That's what they were pleading for. God, drive back our enemies. Drive them back. Put them to shame. Now, verse 6 and 7, they start off talking about the grass on the housetops. So you need to understand that type of house they lived in. They would build the walls, and then the roof would be flat. It would be just made out of branches and thatch and a little mud to kind of hold it together. And so that was what the roof was. It was just flat and kind of dusty and dirty on top. Well, the wind would blow seed around in the air like it does here. And some of that would land up there. And in that little bit of dust, if it got a little moisture and a little warm sunlight, it would start to grow. But because it was just a little layer of dust, there was nothing to get roots into. And so when the hot, dry summer sun came, the grass would just wither. It never grew to any kind of height where you could harvest it. And that's what they're saying here. You know, just let their crops, let their lives be like that grass that lives for a short time and then just wilts, withers away. It's no good for harvest. It's no good for anything. They're saying, let them be worthless. Let them be wasted like that grass that grows on the housetop. And then verse 8 is a two-part blessing that's said between two people. And a lot of times around Easter especially, but we can do this any time. One of us here at Glenwood will walk up to another person and go, He is risen. And the second person will respond, He is risen indeed. It's a two-part greeting. And that's what this was. The blessing of the Lord be upon you would be what I would say if I was walking along and I saw Randy harvesting out in his field. The blessing of the Lord be upon you, meaning may you have a good harvest. May you have a good crop and be able to feed your family. And Randy would respond, We bless you in the name of the Lord. 
is a two-part greeting. But what they're saying here, don't let anyone say that to these people, nor do those that pass by say this. Don't let our enemies be included in this blessing. Don't let them feel like they're part of anything. May they be rejected. So you see, the psalm, the imagery is very much, very meaningful. I mean, the affliction that they went through and then their response saying, God, this is what we want you to do to our enemies. But also verse 5 through 8 can be looked at not just as them wishing these things would happen. Just, boy, I wish you'd do this to them but more as a statement of confidence, saying, this is my God and he can do this. He can defeat my enemies. Similar wordings used elsewhere in Psalms. And like Psalm 6, it's, a, it's interpreted with these words. It says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So in these terms that they're using here and the way they put them together, it can be not just entreating God, you know, kill those guys, you know. I mean, it's not just an, a revenge type thing as much as a confidence in their God that their God can deliver them from the enemy and he can bring these things to pass. And as such, we can look at this. It, you remember the start of it, we said that this sounding like a single person talking is really representative of the nation. It's the nation of Israel talking. And now they're talking in their confidence in God, so it can be looked at like a communal confidence, something that, hey, they've been through a common suffering. They've endured it together. They've seen the deliverance together, and now they have that common confidence that they can look to God as their victor. So we see the pain followed by deliverance, followed by a confident request. That's a picture of persevering. That's the picture we want to use for persevering today. Now, what does that mean to us? What does that mean to us? Well, I've got three things here that I want us to look at. And the first one is perseverance comes from knowing the God of history. Perseverance comes from knowing the God of history. And we see these first verses, they were rehearsing the history of how God had delivered them out of affliction and how God had defeated their enemies, put them to shame. And that's what we need to be aware of. God, we need to know the God of history to develop perseverance. And God does have a history of delivering his people from their enemies down through all time. As you could, A study of church history will bring that. A study of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, will bring that to light. But the first thing we want to see from this psalm is the wicked have not prevailed. When we look back at history and learn, to learn the God of history, we see the wicked have not prevailed. Now, the repetition of the line they use, greatly have they afflicted me from my, my youth, saying that twice, Anytime you repeat things, it's, it's done to, you know, to amplify it, just build its, its effect. But also, in this case, it also heightens the anticipation of the conclusion. You know, great have they afflicted me. Great have they afflicted me, yet they have not prevailed. The conclusion that they have not prevailed is even stronger because you've built the magnitude of the affliction. And so it heightens that. They have not prevailed. But thinking of this as a nation, as they you know, do this as a communal uh, confidence, it got me thinking about we as Americans. Our whole nation was built on the idea of, hey, I can do it myself. I can do it my way. You know, the settlers, as they moved across the nation, man, they'd find a spot of land. Them and their family group would chop trees down, plant <coughs> crops, build a house. They did it all themselves. That was how we built our nation. 
was this mentality of, I can do it. This is my thing. I can do it my way. But what happens for us as Christians, we tend to let that mentality bleed into our Christian life and just saying, hey, I'm suffering, but I can do this. I can do this. I can stand on my own. I can get out of this my way. And that's not what God intends us to do. We fail to see that we're one in the life of God's people. We're part of a bigger body. And these people talking with their communal confidence that God has delivered us, they were saying that not as individuals. You know, hey, God delivered Jim. God delivered Dane. God, you know. No, they're saying God delivered us. We were in this together. We were fighting the battle together. We were afflicted together. And God has delivered us. And also, you know, we, we can say, okay, well, I'll, I'll expand my view and I'll, I'll look at my local, local church or my little small group or whatever. But we fail to see that we're just one generation in history. You know, we can look at our generation and say, man, we're struggling. We're, we're declining. We're harassed. Our influence in society is weakening. And if we look at just our generation, it can be very discouraging. But our perseverance can come from seeing history. You read back through the Bible, back through church history. There have been periods of decline where it was, the church was threatened. Believers were threatened with extinction. But then there's been periods of revival, periods of deliverance where God has brought his people out and brought victory. And the important thing to remember, God has never let his people disappear. God has never let his people disappear. There's always been a body of Christ ever since the beginning. That's the history we find encouragement in. Things are bleak at times. Things are discouraging at times. But God's never let his people disappear. We can find, we can find perseverance from this knowledge of history. He's, the enemy's never prevailed. They have never prevailed totally. And the next point is the Lord has delivered. Just like the Israelites said, hey, you know, as much as our affliction was horrible and deep, the Lord has delivered us. Israel has suffered more than about any nation in history, if you look back through their history. And um, Egypt tried to drown them in the Red Sea. God turned that against the Egyptians. Assyrians tried to starve them into surrendering. And in one night, the angel of the Lord killed over 185,000 Assyrian troops in their camp without Israel lifting a hand to it. Nebuchadnezzar tried to burn them in the fiery furnace, and God turned that on them. The Persians threatened them with the lion's den, but God delivered Daniel, and his persecutors were thrown to the lions. Even more recently, Hitler killed over 6,000 Jews in the Holocaust. But it wasn't three short years after his defeat that Israel became a nation. God has always brought his people through, even when they weren't worthy, you might say. But that's what he does for us, too. We're not worthy. But God has always delivered his people. In the church of Jesus Christ, our church, meaning the global church, not just our local one, but we've experienced persecution and attack. Christ followers have been attacked over the centuries, but still, the t- promise of Jesus Christ holds. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's, it's his promise. He said, I've prevailed in the past, and I've built on this rock. It's not going to fail. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul said, I believe in the promise of God. Things are tough. Things may come that just seem overwhelmingly negative and afflicting, but Paul believed in the God that could deliver him. We've seen in history God can deliver, and that's what we need to find in the God of history is perseverance through what we see that he's brought his people through. Um, An example from the Old Testament is Caleb. I love the story of Caleb. Guy had guts. (laughs) It's just all there is to it. When the 12 spies were sent to spy out the land of Canaan, and they came back with their report about how great the land was, 10 of the 12 said, it's a great place, but man, those people are strong. We don't have a chance. They'll eat us for breakfast. But Caleb and Joshua stood up, risked their life, by the way, to stand up, because the people were going to stone anyone that got in their way of retreating to Egypt. Caleb and Joshua stood up and said, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land. They, he knew the history. He had been in Egypt. He was a captive in Egypt. Egypt. He had seen God deliver them. Caleb had walked across the Red Sea on dry ground and then turned and watched the Egyptian army drown. He had seen God's deliverance. He remembered how God had delivered them as they journeyed to get to the promised land. The people that wanted to fight against them, that God led them around. The, how he provided for them. I mean, you're talking two million plus people walking hundreds of miles. And they never went hungry, never went without water, never went without clothing. God provided. Caleb had seen that. He saw the deliverance. And then, yeah, okay. But he believed in the God of history. He believed in what he had seen himself of God's history. And he said, God can do this again. Don't be afraid. He can do this again. And Caleb risked his life to stand up. As a result, God rewarded him. And in Joshua 15, it's recorded that he was able to enter the promised land and was given a section of land for he and his family. Caleb was rewarded for believing in God. Now, his life was full of struggles. I mean, Egyptian slavery, the struggles of the trip to the promised land, enduring the 40 years in the wilderness, watching all of his contemporaries die. I mean, that just, that gets me more than anything, is just thinking about, I mean, our age group, can you imagine being the only one alive out of this age group? You know, it's you and Joshua and a bunch of young guys, you know. (laughs) An entire generation is gone. He had endured that, but he never forgot that God was the deliverer. And when he entered the promised land, he conquered the section of land they gave him and established it for his family. So Caleb's a great picture of perseverance in the face of trial, in the face of affliction. So we need to know the God of history. But the second thing I want us to see is perseverance comes from praying to the God of the present. Perseverance comes from praying to the God of the present. 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 Praying to the God of presence. That that doesn't sound bad either, actually. But we're going to pray to the God of the present. um, Just the first point there. Courage grows when we pray. Courage grows when we pray. As we already talked about, this is like a communal thing. These, these people are lamenting as a group about their common trials and their common afflictions. And then they turn 
to pleading with God communally for his victory against this. But the underlying tone is just a sound, a song of confidence. There's a confidence here. You know, even though they talk about their afflictions, they say, hey, but they didn't, def- they didn't prevail. And they talk about the deep furrows in their back, the painful affliction. But God delivered them. And now they confidently ask God to defeat their enemies. It's a song of confidence. And as, you know, you look at this as their, their community, their body, singing this, you can look at it as a form of prayer. So we could say that this is a prayer of confidence. God, we pray that you'll do this. We know you're capable of doing this. It's a prayer of confidence. And this confidence is partly based on experience, like we've just seen. We just talked about the experience of delivery and the history of delivery. But just the real deep confidence and courage to face the current situation, whether it's continued affliction, a newly arising attack, whatever, the real confidence and courage to face it came when they applied that memory to their present situation. You know, it's one thing to remember. I mean, hey, it's, I don't know, I haven't been to a class reunion in years, but that's what it turned out to be when I went. You remember, you know, hey, wow, we did this in high school, and now we have nothing in common. So, you know, it's one thing to remember, you know, but to take a memory and apply it to today, you know, for them to say, hey, I remember God delivering us, he'll do it today. To apply that when we pray about today's situations, that's where the real confidence comes. That's where our real courage can come. And we see that in the children of Israel, this was not a shallow thing. This was not just, hey, let's get together on Sunday morning, chat about this, and then go about our lives. This was real. They were still under affliction. As they went to Jerusalem, they knew when they went back home, Those enemies were still there. The people that were trying to undermine what they were doing were still there. The people trying to defeat them from rebuilding were still there. They knew they still needed God. They still needed the deliverance of God in their life. So this was not a shallow thing. This was not an easy thing just to, you know, let it roll off your tongue and say, God, you're awesome. They were pleading. They needed that memory that they had of history to apply today. And that's what we need. We need to remember, God's delivered us before. I know God's delivered so-and-so from this situation. He can do it again. And we need to pray that way. We need to pray that God would build in us a confidence and a courage that comes from a faith, a faith that's based on experience with God and based on our confidence in God. So we need to pray because courage grows when we pray. But also, building courage through prayer may require giving forgiveness may require giving forgiveness. It's kind of a little side side track here that I, I got stuck on in a couple things I was reading. But I think it makes a lot of sense. Building courage through prayer may require giving forgiveness. One of the things that scientists tell us about our brain is that we never actually forget anything. That, that's, I, I find that hard to believe at times, but... That fact still sticks in my brain. I haven't forgotten that. They say we never actually forget anything. We may misfile something. It may get connected to the wrong trigger and come up at the wrong time. Uh, it, the connection may just get weak due to lack of use. You know, like the calculus that I used to know that I don't know anymore. It's still in there. I just can't find it. That kind of thing. We never actually forget 
So when someone wrongs us, when someone attacks us, when someone afflicts us or persecutes us, we never forget it. In our brain, our human brain, we never forget that. So how do we move on? You know, if we, if we truly never forget, then how can we as a Christ follower move on for the cause of Christ without being stuck in the past with that, with that hurt and with that pain? The answer is forgiveness. We have to forgive. In Luke 23, Jesus on the cross, dying a torturous death for sins he did not commit, being blasphemed and attacked by people he had done nothing to. He prayed, Father, forgive them. Stephen, in the book of Acts, was being stoned to death for preaching the gospel. He hadn't physically attacked anyone. He hadn't called them names. He hadn't picketed in front of their house. He was just telling them, this is the truth of the gospel. And they stoned him. And as he was dying, he looked to heaven and he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He forgave them. That's what we have to do to leave the past in the past. We have to forgive those things. Now, how? How? It's easy to say, hey, you have to do that. Bye. And I'll go on my way. But no. How do we do that? Have you ever had trouble forgiving something, forgiving somebody? How do we do it? Warren Wiersbe described it like this in his commentary on this psalm. He said, The image of plowing used in verse 3 is a perfect picture for forgiveness. Of itself, the plowing or the suffering does not produce anything but pain. The situation produces nothing but pain. The key is what we do with it. The result of the plowing is, depends on what we plant in those furrows, to use the farming reference. Say, you, plant, you plow the field, you plant. Well, what are you going to plant when your back's been plowed? Are you going to plant seeds of hatred and resentment? That's going to result in bitterness. You're not going to be able to move on. But if you plant seeds of faith and hope and love from the promises of God's Word, then you'll become a blessing in your life and to others, much as Caleb. Caleb did not allow the people attacking him and Joshua to cause him to become bitter. But he sowed the seeds of love. He sowed the seeds of hope. And he stuck in there and he was rewarded. So suffering, yeah, I wrote this down so I'll read it. Suffering is not the real issue. (laughs) That's hard to get past. When you're suffering, that's hard to get past. That's not the issue. But suffering is not the real issue. What we do with it is the issue. What we learn from God's teaching, what we do with that suffering is the issue. Whether we want to be bitter, we want to live in a life of hatred and seeking revenge on our own, or do we want a forgiveness that allows God to build courage in our lives, to persevere through the situation? It's how we handle it. Now, you know, can I really do that? You know, this is like a three-step thing. First, I tell you to forgive. That's, that's pretty easy to say. Then I tell you how to do it. It's like, all right, it's a little tougher, but, you know, okay, at least there's a, there's a, there's a how-to. But then, the, can I really do that? Can I really forgive? Can I really plant the seeds of love in a situation? And the simple answer is no. You cannot. I cannot. 
Verse 4 says the Lord is righteous. God is the righteous one. He is the one that cut the cords of the wicked. And He is the one that can forgive because only God is righteous. The only righteousness we have is when God sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our own righteousnesses, according to the book of, of Isaiah, our own righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So imagine what our bad stuff looks like if that's our righteousness. We can only be righteous through the blood of Christ, meaning we can only forgive others through the blood of Christ as He's forgiven us. So is it easy? No, because we can't do it on our own. We have to let God work through us in this forgiveness. But it requires forgiveness if we're going to leave those things in the past. Now, they may, it may be a current, ongoing situation, so you can't literally leave it in the past because it's still here. Kind of a time travel thing there. But you can leave the hurt in the past. You can let God forgive through you and move on. So we need to pray to the God of the present to grow courage in us, even when that requires forgiveness. An example is Paul and Silas. I'll turn to Acts 16, if you would. I just, this is just a cool story to read. And it's easier, probably quicker to read than it is to try to recap, because I, I drift when I recap. So if I read, it'll keep me on it. But Acts chapter 16 Paul and Silas are preaching God's word, as Paul did once he was converted. That's, that's just his life. So we see in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. People that owned her used her to make money like a magician. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. The context here is that she wasn't doing that to help them. She was doing that to ridicule them and to cause trouble. So going on in verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. There's some affliction. There's a little bit of an attack there. Paul and Silas, for preaching the gospel, were attacked physically, verbally, emotionally, and they were thrown into the deepest, darkest area of the prison and put in the stocks, unable to move on their own. There's some, there's some pain. There's some suffering. Now, what did they do with it? Well, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners heard, were listening to them. That's what they did. That's what they did with their pain. They prayed and sang hymns to God. There was forgiveness there, or you wouldn't be able to openly pray and sing to God. 
Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Not only had they forgiven to the point that they could sit and sing and praise God, they'd forgiven to the point that they didn't escape when they had a chance. They stayed. They stayed there. And the story goes on that the jailer was so impressed. He said, how do I get what you have? How can I come to know Christ? And they led him and his family to Christ. Because of their witness, because of their way of handling suffering, they didn't sow resentment. They didn't sow bitterness. They sowed love. And this love so impacted this jailer that he and his family were saved that night. So Paul and Silas, a great example of praying to the God of the present and letting that courage work in their lives. So we need to look, we need to know the God of history and we need to pray to the God of the present. The third point is perseverance comes from confidence in the God of the future. Perseverance comes from confidence in the God of the future. We've seen the God of history. We've prayed to the God of the present. Now we need to learn perseverance comes from confidence in the God of the future. I mean, we've talked about courage coming through prayer. We talked about how we need to see ourselves as not alone, but as part of the generations of God's family. So the first point here is our confidence grows in community. Our confidence grows in community. We, you know, like we said, we need to learn we're part of a bigger picture. And so our confidence will grow in community. It's not just something where we stand on our own and try to suffer through something. We need to be in the community of God's family. Uh, the picture that God shows here is that he doesn't want us to suffer alone. And the uh, first thing I thought of when I, when I wrote that, you know, some of these things I write down and then I think about them. I go, wow, that's taken me somewhere else. Because the first thing I thought of when I said he doesn't want us to suffer alone is, you know, misery loves company, right? <laughs> hey, I'm hurting. Come on, Jim. Sit down here and hurt with me, you know. It's, misery loves company. But that's not what I mean. There is truth in that <laughs> in a twisted sense, but that's not what I meant. What I mean is that God intends for us as a body of believers to share with and support each other. He intends for us to be there to support each other and to help each other. Our grow groups is a great example of that. Small group that we meet, we fellowship over some food, we have prayer time, we can share as we study God's Word. When we pray, we can pray for each other. You know, hey, there may be things in your life that you wouldn't share in a big group like this. But when it's like four or five men praying together, people you've come to trust, people you've come to be with for a time you'll open up and you'll share things. And we can pray for each other in a deep way that builds community. So our confidence grows in a community like this. Also, think of our missionaries. You know, we talk about we have our small group. And, you know, I have, there's four or five other men in that group that I respect. I've come to know them as Christians over the years. And there's a bond there. Take a foreign missionary that goes to a foreign country. They don't have that support group. I mean, if there was four or five other people rooted and grounded as well as they are there, they wouldn't go there. They would go somewhere else where the need is. So when they're there, they don't have 
that intimate, close support group that they can meet with once a week. And so it's critical that we pray for them. It's critical that we pray that God will help people cross their paths that can give them a strength that, hey, they may start a new church. They may have 20 new believers, but those are new believers. Nothing against new believers. The life they bring is great, but there's times that you need somebody that's been through the same struggle you have as a Christian and has seen God deliver them. You need a long-term relationship. And that's one thing I really like about the ministry of uh, the Lugers and the Mingos that we've, uh, the Lugers we support and the Mingos were just here for world outreach. They are there to help support missionaries. You know, their, their ministry isn't to go out and start churches or to preach in a church. Their ministry is just to come alongside a missionary who's hurting, a missionary who's lonely, and just say, hey, you're not alone. You know, here, let me help you. Let me show you some things that will help you. But our confidence grows in community. And we need to keep, keep ourselves mindful of that and not isolate ourselves, especially when trouble comes. Don't let trouble pull you away from the very people that can be your support. We need to be in community. And the second thing under here, our confidence must sustain us when deliverance is not immediate. Our confidence, confidence must sustain us when deliverance is not immediate. Margaret Thatcher, when she was Prime Minister of Great Britain, once said, you may have to fight a battle more than once to win it. You know, not everything is, is, a, uh, is a one and done. There may be battles you have to fight multiple times. You need to persevere. And that del- you need the confidence that even though deliverance is not immediate, the God is, is still there. And the book of Acts gives us many examples, like the other, earlier one of Paul and Silas, where people were delivered. And we're delivered almost immediately out of a trial. But church history also records multitudes of Christ followers that were imprisoned for life, exiled, tortured to death, beheaded, burned at the stake. Things that, to me, are almost unfathomable. I'm I'm a sheltered Midwestern American, and that's to my shame to some extent. But history's full of those things. And those things can be depressing. They can be discouraging. They can be daunting. But, you know, there's good news. I've read the end of the book. I've read the end of the book. We win. Not on our power, but we got somebody on our side that can defeat all of this. And that person is Jesus Christ. We may not get immediate deliverance when we pray. We may not get deliverance from a situation in this world at all. But when Christ returns, when the day of the Lord comes, he'll settle the score. We can have our confidence in him, the God of the future. He will settle the score. And then the third point here, cling to his promises. Cling to his promises. They're as secure as his history. We've looked at his history. We've talked about the history. And as secure as that history is, that's how secure his promises are. So cling to his promises. Uh, we already read Matthew sixteen eighteen, where Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In uh, John 10, it's recorded that Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. His promises based on his history, based on the confidence he's built in us through prayer, his promises, we can cling to those. And his promises are, we'll never perish if we're his child. 
And Paul was so confident in this, he wrote in 2 Timothy, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I believed. And I'm persuaded. And that word persuaded isn't like, you know, okay, I guess you talk me into trying that pop thing. You know, no. Persuaded. A deep, burning persuasion. It's, it's basically saying no again. I know. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. Paul said, I know. I know who I've believed in, and I know he's capable of taking care of me. Illustration here. Anyone here ever serve in the military? I heard a mm-hmm. Basic training. is. This is just a picture I have in my mind that probably happened at some point in basic training. You have a drill instructor, and he has a little, you know, his, his group of soldiers there, and he goes, now, soldiers, when you get into battle... There'll be people shooting at you. There'll be people throwing bombs and grenades. There'll be people leaving landmines, explosive devices. There's going to be people trying to kill you. It's going to be uncomfortable, maybe even stressful for you. But if it gets to be too much, just come back to the base. I'll be here. We'll sit together. We'll, we'll have some milk and cookies, and we'll just talk about it till it gets better. <laughs> really? <laughs> of course it didn't happen. <laughs> of course it didn't. What happens is they yell at you. They ridicule you. They do everything to push you to your very limits and beyond because they know the only way you'll survive if you're ever in battle is if you have a confidence that comes from that training, a confidence that comes from, okay, I've been through worse than this, and if I don't get out of this, I got to go back and listen to him again. So I, you know, but there's a confidence that comes from that type of training. And it also comes from a shared bond of the others on your squad that you suffered with. So as Christ followers, we face a battle. Ephesians 6:12 says, "We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places." We face a battle. And if we just come to church every week and we sit around and we talk about, you know, the milk and, milk and honey, the good sweet things, we won't be hardened for life. We won't be hardened to face the battle that's out there. We need to talk about perseverance. We need to talk about things that are difficult. Um, oh, well, we'll do this. I don't know how you feel about the election. I'm not asking. There's probably people here that are going, all right, good one. Then there's people going, "Eh, you know, lesser of two evils. We'll see what happens. And then there's some of you that are just predicting doom. You know, the worst of the two evils. Whatever. The thing that we can all, as Christ followers, be united on is that the future is going to hold changes. Somehow or another. The future is going to hold changes. There's already things being discussed and being pushed in some areas about removing the tax-exempt status from churches or removing the tax deduction from people that give to churches. Uh, some people want to pass laws that label certain teachings as hate speech, you know, anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, things like this, as hate speech and make them punishable. There are things already being discussed We face a tough time. We face a difficult time. But we're called in Proverbs 4 
it's written that we're to be a light shining in the darkness. He says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. We're to shine like the light of the dawn. You know, it's like, I don't like getting up early. But a cool thing about getting up early is seeing the sunrise. There's just something kind of neat about the little orange globe that just suddenly bursts out and you have bright daylight. That's what we're to be in the world. We're to be there. We're to be shining in darkness. The darkness doesn't want light. The darkness doesn't really know that they're darkness. But we're to be there. We're called to be the light in that darkness. We may be outsiders. Pilgrims were called a lot of times. We may be unwanted by the mainstream of society or the mainstream of world culture. But we have a hope. We have a confidence that's grounded in the promises of God. We can persevere because we know the God of history. We can pray to the God of the present and we can have confidence in the God of the future. We can persevere, but we need to do it together, right, as a community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you do talk about things that aren't, aren't always pleasant. You talk about things that are difficult. But I thank you that we can learn from those and we can grow from those. And I thank you for each one here today. Just pray that you'd bless us now as we go to the worship service. Help us to continue to keep our hearts united towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.